0: As I was studying this passage of scripture this last week, I came across a couple of paragraphs in John MacArthur's commentary on Romans. And these two paragraphs really hit home. I mean, they just hit you, you know, sometimes things hit you like a rock. Because they really speak to the culture in which we live. And others of you were wondering, how is the pastor going to weave Super Bowl into the the sermon this morning? (laughs) And as most of you probably know, this is Super Bowl Sunday. And as some of you know, I'm a lifelong Kansas City chiefs fan. I've been waiting 50 years and 800 games for the Chiefs to get back to the Super Bowl. And this past Monday morning, I opened up MacArthur's commentary, and I started to reading, and he began his comments on Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 13 this way: "Our society is obsessed with sports." And I thought, "Oh great, this is going to be convicting." And so I wrote in the margin, Super Bowl Sunday, 2-2-2020, two, two, go Chiefs. <laughs> Maybe that just proved his point. <laughs> you know, and I was listening this last week. As of Wednesday, $1.7 billion had been bet on the game in Las Vegas, and I'm sure that's increased the last, the last three days. But he, he went on. Our society is obsessed with sports, recreation, entertainment oh, you had to mention entertainment. Didn't we just have the Grammy Awards this last week and obsessed with entertainment and emotional gratification? And it's paying the consequences of that unbalanced preoccupation. With such pursuits, when such pursuits exceed their reasonable roles, they become conspicuous marks of a shallow, superficial and often decadent society that cultivates them. And then if that were not enough, MacArthur also hit the nail on the head in the second paragraph about what's happening in America politically and what's going on in Washington and what's going on economically and socially in our country. And he quoted President Theodore Roosevelt, which probably one of my favorite presidents if you go back and maybe second to John Adams. But anyway, Teddy Roosevelt, he says, once commented, the things that will destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty, and the love of soft living and the get-rich theory of life. And then MacArthur adds, that observation is still, still valid. Now, it's not my intent to talk whether we fully agree with MacArthur and discuss those things this morning or get into specific examples of how it relates to what's going on other than the Super Bowl and how it relates to that. But I mention these quotes for a, a particular reason. In Romans chapter 12 and all those things that I read this morning, verses 9 through 21, Paul gives what appears to be 25 rapid fire exhortations that tell us how we are to live as Christians in the world and in the culture in which we do live. So whether we live in India or one of the many other countries where churches are being burned and Christians persecuted and killed, or we live in the United States where our governmental and societal structures are blatantly secular and oftentimes very anti-Christian, the biblical principles of Christian living are still the same. How do we live as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? How do we live as those whose sins have been forgiven. How do we live as those who have been given a new nature in Christ? We are new creations in Jesus Christ. How do we live as those who will live for eternity in the presence of God? And that's Paul's thrust when we get to Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters of deep, wonderful, doctrinal truths, he turns to practice. So now, all those things that I taught in the first 11 chapters, Paul would say, how do you live those truths? And in a word, we are to live supernaturally, supernaturally, not as the natural man lives, the man who is not born again. But we are to live as one who is born of the spirit of God and dwelt by the spirit of God, filled with the spirit of God and serving one another with our spiritual gifts. And Paul now is saying, okay, this is how, how you get it done. So when we get to chapter 12, the person who has been justified by God's grace, that's Romans chapters 1 through 11, who has presented his or her body as a living holy sacrifice, Romans 12 1, and who is exercising their spiritual gifts the Lord has given to him or her, Romans 12, 3 through 8, will experience the outflowing or sanctified or holy spiritual living. So Let's begin by turning over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a moment. The 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul does something very similar in Romans chapter 12 that he does in Romans or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about the body of Christ and then he goes in-depth into the spiritual gifts and how we serve one another for the, the common good and how we exercise those gifts for the common good of the body of Christ. And then Paul follows the chapter on spiritual gifts with his famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. After talking about the use of the spiritual gifts, Paul turns to the subject of love. And so we, we pick it up in the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. And he says, but desire, earnestly desire the greater gifts. But I show you a still more excellent way. And what's that excellent way? It's the way of love. Verse 1 of chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to describe this kind of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love does not act unbecomingly. It bears all things and hopes all things and and so forth. And Paul gives description after description of what genuine love is looks like. Now Paul does the same thing back in Romans chapter 12. If you go back to the 12th chapter of Romans. Because Paul has been talking about our spiritual gifts and how you exercise those spiritual gifts. And we, we talked about the motivational gifts last week. That each one of us has one of these particular spiritual gifts by which we are to, to serve the body. And so as soon he's through talking about that and says he who shows mercy with cheerfulness in verse 8. He says in verse 9, let love... Once again, Paul turns to love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference preference to one another in honor. Now, Romans chapter 12 is not as poetic as 1 Corinthians 13, but the subject is still the same. It's still the same idea. After talking about the spiritual gifts, it's all about love. This is what love looks like. This is what love does and what it doesn't do. Now, most of the first uh, admonitions here in Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9, are participles. Anybody remember what a participle is? Let's go back to the sixth grade in English. A participle ends with three particular letters. Anybody remember what they are? I-N-G. I-N-G. Like going and running. And so you take a verb like I run, and then you add an I-N-G to the end, which is is running or laughing. These are our participles. And a participle is made from a verb, but it's not a verb, it's really an adjective. It describes or modifies something else. Participles modify the noun or the verb. Now a good example of this is the Great Commission in in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to turn to there to the to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 uh, the 19th verse. The Great Commission, there's only one verb in the Great Commission of what Jesus said here, and that verb is a command, it's an imperative, it's make disciples. That is the verb, that is the command. And there are three participles that describe how that process takes place. And so in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 28, he says, go therefore, now the word go here is translated go in English, but it's a participle. It should, be say, it should say, going therefore. A good translation would be, while you are going. Assuming that you will go and you are going. While you are going, what? Make disciples of all the nations. The command of the verb is to make disciples. And how do we make disciples? How do we obey the command? The participles tell us how to do that. By going, participle, and baptizing, participle, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and what? teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. So what does that have to do with Romans chapter 12? We're going to be flipping back and forth (laughs) quite a bit between these, these chapters this morning. Go back to Romans chapter 12, and I want to show you some participles. The subject of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, all the way down to the end of the chapter, the subject is love. It's all about love. And the participles describe what that love looks like. So let me point out some of the participles that say this is what love looks like. And I'm going to be more literal with the participles than than your translation of the Bible uh, probably is. But say in, in verse 10, it is serving, it is teaching. It is giving in verse or verse seven, I should have said. Verse seven is serving and teaching. In verse eight, it is giving. It is showing mercy, literally. Uh it it is rejoicing, persevering, it is being devoted, it is contributing, it is practicing. All of this is to say that, that love is described this is what love does by all these, these participles, the adjectives that that describe love. Now you don't have to turn back to it, but I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for a minute. You don't need to turn to it because you'll, you'll know what I mean as I start to explain this. Because we can do a similar thing in Romans chapter 12 and we'll get to that. But if you want to know if you truly are a loving person, as love is described in the love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and some of you know where I'm going with this because you've done this before. Substitute the word I, I am, for the word love, words love is. For example, instead of reading love is patient, love is kind, read, this gets convicting real fast. (laughs) I am patient, I am kind, I'm not jealous, I do not brag, nor am I arrogant. Now, to me, it sounds arrogant just to say that (laughs) because there's a lack of humility right off the bat. And so on the one hand, any one of us as believers, when we honestly appraise our life by these standards of love, we cannot help but be convicted by it because we fall so short of the perfection, the born-again inner person desires and what God wants for us. And on the other hand, the believer who is walking in the Spirit will see the Spirit of God working out these precepts in his or her life to a greater and greater extent. We will grow in love this way. And so an honest look at our lives in light of these precepts about love, they're going to bring strong conviction about our failure to keep some of them, and they're going to bring confidence about our success in keeping others. I, I can see myself growing in this, and, and God has been working in this way. And I used to be like, but man, the other day, I really love that person in, in a particular way. And that's the time that we should give God praise and thanks for his working in and through us for his glory. Now, this kind of thing applies to Romans chapter 12 as well. So we're back in Romans chapter 12, flipping back and forth. Because as we read these 25 admonitions of what love looks like, what genuine love looks like, you know, our tendency is to be overwhelmed by them or to start looking at them and say, well, I'm doing pretty good with not lagging behind in diligence. I'm workaholic, so that must count. <laughs> you know, I'm not very good at fervent in spirit because I'm an alcoholic, and or not an alcoholic, but a workaholic. Did I say alcoholic before? <laughs> I don't know which one I said, but I hope you got the idea. <laughs> But, you know, and we want to take these, and then we'll have a legalistic tendency sometimes to say, okay, I'm going to make a list, and I'm going to have a New Year's resolution, and I'm going to put this list of 25 things on my, on my refrigerator, or, you know, I'm going to get up every morning and say, how did I do yesterday? And I'm just going to take a big black marker and wipe it all out and then tear it out and throw it away, because, you know, that, that, that's not what Paul is saying here. Because as we submit to the Holy Spirit, and we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we grow in his word that he has given to us, and we seek to obey God as we understand his word, these qualities, along with our desire to submit to them, will manifest themselves in love, and it'll become more and more evident in our lives. In other words, as we submit to the word of God and to the spirit of God, these qualities of love become reality. And before we get into the first part of these qualities, before we get into that, I want to do something similar in Romans chapter 12 that we did in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where we put I am. Except I'm going to turn it around this time because for these first few verses, this turned out to be a really good outline and a way to, to express this. So instead of substituting the word I for the word love, I want to show you how love is the subject of Romans chapter 12. So just listen to these as I approach the subject of love as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is what sincere love looks like in Romans 12 verses 9 through 13. I believe I put it in your outline. Love is without hypocrisy. Love abhors what is evil. Love clings to what is good. Love is devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love gives preference to one another in honor. Love does not lag behind in diligence. Love is fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. Love is rejoicing in hope. Love is persevering in tribulation. Love is devoted to prayer. Love is contributing to the needs of the saints. And love is practicing hospitality. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. So living the Christian life begins with love, and it continues with love. So that brings us to the first description of love in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Literally, it says, love without hypocrisy. And love is a noun there. There, There's no verb in there whatsoever. So it's a command, and so most translations say, let love be without hypocrisy. It's a command. It's an imperative. Not only are these descriptions of what genuine love looks like in the Christian, but they are commands to express love this way. And as you probably know, the word translated love here is agape, or agape, however you want to pronounce it. And agape refers to the unselfish, self-giving, willful devotion. And so it's a matter of the will, it's unselfish, and it's self-giving as a matter of the will. And consistently through the New Testament, love is not an uncontrollable feeling or it's not an emotion that comes over us and we just have to go with wherever the emotion leads us that comes over us once in a while, but rather love, biblical love, is a command to be obeyed. And the Lord Jesus Christ made this explicit when he was in the upper room with his disciples. He looked at them and said, A new commandment I give you that you "You love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's a command, Jesus said. Now, the old commandment was what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that commandment is not null and void, but how are we to love our neighbor as ourselves? Whatever we do for ourselves to meet our own needs or whatever it is we would do for our neighbor. And Jesus gives a new command. It doesn't void the old command. It's still valid. But the new command, Jesus raised the bar big time. The new command, we are to love one another. How? As Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love us? The supreme demonstration of Jesus' love is when he went to the cross and bore God's wrath on our behalf. And he didn't do that just because and he felt an impulsive urge to do something nice for us. (laughs) Or felt, you know, these guys, you know, they're really needy. They're really, I really pity them, so I'm going to die on the cross for them. No. He did it in obedience to the will of the Father. And so based on Christ's self-sacrificing love on the cross, we can define biblical love. And I wish I would put this in the outline, but I didn't. So I'll read it a couple of times. Biblical love can be defined as a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself biblical love is a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good in seeking the highest good of the one loved it's a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved it's self-sacrificing it's caring it shows itself love gape love is a, an action verb literally and so, what is the highest good? The highest good, we're told in Romans, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the highest good is what? That we be conformed to the image of Christ. That, that's God's goal for every one of us as believers, that we be transformed into the image of Christ. And so, the highest good that we have for another person in expressing our love towards them is going to work towards that highest good at least in increments, (laughs) that's why God works with us, uh, along the way. And by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, you can choose, you can willfully choose to sacrifice your selfish interest on behalf of others with the aim that they be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, their highest good. The highest good of every believer is to be conformed into his image. So Paul says that this kind of love is without hypocrisy. What a great word. Hupokrites. The word translated hypocrisy refers to the mask that actors wore on the stage in those days. You know, They would take on the part. You've probably seen those in advertisements for stage plays in our day. I remember when I was in high school, I was a thespian. I only had one short part in one play, but I was the stage manager in all the rest of them. You know, and when we'd advertise our plays and stuff, we would show those masks on the the advertising the play, maybe seeing that, and some of the masks were happy. You know, had a happy face. Oh, we're sad, you know, and some of them looked really evil, you know. The actor didn't really feel that way, that the mask signaled, but the mask showed the role that he was playing. And Paul says that our love for one another is not to be a phony mask or role-playing, but rather to be the real thing. We should genuinely desire God's best for others and speak and act for them so that they can reach that goal. Now, Paul wouldn't have written this unless he knew there was a strong tendency even among believers to put on a mask of love. To put on a mask. To cover our hearts. And our hearts can be full of selfishness, jealousy, manipulation, bitterness, even hatred. And we can put on a mask, you know, and say, hey, I, I, I'm doing this for your good. I really have your good at heart. And The epitome of love with hypocrisy was when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Outwardly, it looked as if Judas really cared for Jesus, but in reality, he was giving Jesus over to bloodthirsty men who would torture him and, and kill him. And so Paul is calling us here to a sincere love from the heart. He is calling us to sincere or genuine love. The word translated here without hypocrisy is often translated to be sincere or or genuine. In our English word, sincere is an interesting word. It comes from two Latin words. Sincere comes from two Latin words that mean without wax. Without wax. You go, sine sera. Where, Where did they get that? Without wax. You see... In the ancient world, dishonest merchants would fill a crack in a pot with wax and then they'd glaze over it, selling the defective pot as if it were just fine. Don't give anybody any ideas today. Only later would the buyer discover that the pot was worthless. So honest dealers would stamp on the pot, Sinistera, verifying it was without, without wax, and what Paul is saying here is the same thing without, without hypocrisy. Now, turn over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 for a minute. John's first chapter, chapter verse, first letter, chapter 3, the 16th verse. And in the, in the third chapter of John's first letter, he warns of some of the hypocrisy that Christians can fall into. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in verse 16. Of First John, or Apostle John. I'll get, I get those guys confused, don't you all? <laughs> Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 3. And we know love by this. How do we know love? How is John going to describe it here? How do we know love? That Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sacrificial love that seeks the best of somebody else. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Keeping in mind the highest good of the one loved. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul gets to the second one. Second description of love, love abhors what is evil. Verse 9 again, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. Literally, it's abhorring what is evil. It's the present continuous tense here. As a matter of lifestyle, all the time, abhorring what, what, is, what is evil. And Paul uses an amazingly strong word here that means to abhor or hate, hating what is evil. He doesn't say just avoid evil. just Not just avoid it as if we're not going to watch that TV show or we're not going to do this or we're not going to participate in that. I'm I'm just going to avoid it. We are to detest it. We are to hate it. And the Greek verb used here in the New Testament has the nuance of shrinking back in horror at that evil. Shrinking back. It's an emotion, a reaction against all that displeases God. Since God hates sin, to be indifferent towards sin is to be indifferent toward God. Now, I don't have to tell you, that's a really tough thing to do in our culture in which we live. We have been conditioned, we have been bombarded by sin and evil 24-7. Portrayed on TV, on the internet, in video games... That at least our culture is no longer shocked by it. The question is, are we shocked by it? Are we shrinking back in horror at this? Our senses have been so bombarded that we no longer shrink back that way. Now, even among the pagans, Corinth, to show you how bad it was, even among the pagans, even among the Romans, Corinth was known as Sin City. <laughs> So it's even worse than Rome. The Romans called it sin city. And many believers in the church there had great difficulty when they came to Christ, giving up the ways of their old life. And so Paul warned them that their only safe response to the allures of sexual immorality and idolatry was what? Flee from it. Run. You know, we're watching a TV show in our house and we're seeing this person on the TV screen. We just know they're going to get in trouble. And we yell, run away! (laughs) We run away. We talk to the TV set. Now, we got that from Monty Python, so I won't tell you where we got that. But it's also biblical because what did Joseph do in in, in, in Egypt? When Potiphar's wife came on to him, what did he do? He ran away. He, He ran away. And Paul warned Timothy that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and, by, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith. If you don't run away from it, it's going to suck you in, and you're going to wander away from the faith. And then Paul was very direct with Timothy. He said, flee from youthful lust. Run away and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name from a pure heart. Turn over Proverbs chapter 6. The 16th verse for a minute because uh, I want to show you something in, in Proverbs that just gives us a sampling of what God hates and what we are to run away from. Love means that we are to hate the same thing that God hates, right? You know, th- we often think of love and hate as opposites, and you can't do one one or the other. You have to or you have to be one or the other, and not at the same time, but. We are to love certain things and people and and God, and we are to hate other things. Love means we are to hate what is displeasing to God, and love means that we are to hate the countless sins that man has devised to disobey the Lord and and reject his ways. And so in uh, chapter 6, verse 16 of Proverbs, the Proverbs says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Now, we even talked about this in seminary. None of us have a clue why he starts with six things and then goes to seven, other than it forms a couplet. And all the Proverbs form a couplet in every verse. Then he goes on. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the one who spreads strife among brothers. Isn't it interesting The spreading strife among brothers would be included in all those other lists of sins? And so in contrast to shrinking back in horror and running away from evil, love holds on to the good. Love holds on to the good. Back to Romans chapter 12 again in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Literally clinging to what is good. The opposite of running from evil and what is evil is to cling, to hold on to what is good. Literally, the word here means to be glued to. Glued to it. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead and he was talking to Mary Magdalene and, and when she realized who he was, she she grabbed a hold of him. and And, and you know, some translations say you know, Jesus said, "Do not touch me." Uh, that, that's not a strong enough word. He used the same word for cling here. Do not keep clinging to me. Do not be glued to me, because I haven't ascended to the Father. He, he wasn't shoving her off. He was just saying, "I just got something to do. Then I'm coming. I'm coming back." But the word clinging here or glued to refers to any bond that was, It could be a physical bond. It could be an emotional bond. It could be a spiritual bond. As servants of Jesus Christ, we are to bind ourselves as glue to that which is inherently right and worthy. Up in verse 2 of this 12th chapter of Romans, we see what the good is to which we are to be glued to. That God's good is acceptable in his perfect will. Where he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There we see getting away from one thing and going to another again. So that you may be prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The good is God's will. It's acceptable. It's his perfect will. And we are to hold tightly which, to that which is good. Because the enemy is always trying to loosen our grip to be more tolerant of evil. Well, just this once won't hurt. Or no, don't worry about that. Or or whatever. And he's just constantly trying to loosen Our grip. You know, as we separate ourselves from the things of God and saturate ourselves with the word of God, the things that are good will more and more replace the things that are evil in our lives. Now in verse 10 of Romans chapter 12, Paul turns to our love for our Christian brothers and sisters. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And he uses two wonderful words here. He uses the word Philadelphia. We understand that. That's brotherly love, love of a brother. He also uses Philostargay here. Philostarge, which is a tender kind of love. It refers to family affection. Uh, We could translate it literally, tenderly loving philostarge, one another as brothers and sisters that you love. Philadelphia. And so James Boyce gives the sense of it here. And he says, respect to the love of our brothers and sisters, we are to be marked by a devotion that is characteristic of a loving, close-knit, mutually supporting family. Again, this is a command. It's not a suggestion to try if you're in a good mood or when your emotions are taking you that way. But it does involve our emotions. You know, love has all kinds of emotions connected with it, right? And our emotions sometimes get the better of us when it comes to love. So this kind of love involves our emotions. And so the question is, if it's a command, how do we do it? How do we command our emotions? And Martin Lloyd-Jones, point, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out you know, that it never works to approach the emotions directly. You know, we try to go and change our emotions or control our emotions. He say, says, that, that doesn't work. He says, rather, feelings are always the result of something else, the result ultimately of understanding and of thought. The emotions are what we understand, come from what we stand, they come from what we are thinking. You know, are we going to let our emotions control our thinking and our understanding, or is our thinking and understanding going to control our emotions? And so he points out, if we just put a cloak of feelings on that we don't have, it would be hypocrisy. Rather he says, we go back to the doctrines that Paul has expounded in Romans chapter one through 11, and the logical conclusion that he urges in chapter 12, verses one and two, that we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, and we are renewed by the renewing of our minds. And I would add, as we serve one another in the area of our spiritual gifts, then a wonderful and amazing thing happens. Then we realize that by God's mercy, we have been born into his family. Along with all others who have trusted in Jesus Christ. None of us deserved it. But now we are related to one another through the new birth. And we will be spending eternity with one another. Look around the room. These are the people (laughs) that we are going to spend eternity with, along with everybody else who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So heartfelt obedience to these commands comes from responding to the teachings of who we are in Jesus Christ. All who believe in Christ are part of God's family. We should feel closer to a brother and sister in Christ than we do to a relative who does not know Christ. Thus, sacrificial, transformed living calls us to love without hypocrisy. And this love is holy. It is brotherly. And then finally, love gives preference to one another in honor. Verse 10 again. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The Greek word translated giving preference to literally means to lead or go before. It has the idea of seeing an example. And so Dr. Boyce says that Paul means here, don't wait around for people to recognize your contributions and praise you. Instead, be alert to what you are contributing to in honoring them. Don't wait around for people to, oh, wow, you're a really good guy. You did this. I appreciate that. You know, and you're going to get some of that as a Christian. You should because you should get it from the people who aren't putting themselves first, right? Yeah. So we're not to seek honor for ourselves, but genuinely, or rather genuinely to rejoice when others receive honor and we don't. And that's easily, easily more said than, than practice. But I just want to, want to close with this. In conclusion, we need to be clear that Paul says, yeah, we're to put other people first and we're, we're not to think more highly of ourselves and those kind of things. That it doesn't mean that we set aside the spiritual gifts that God has given us. It doesn't mean that we set aside what God has called each one individually and specifically to do and to be in the body of Christ and, you know, and get the idea. That there's kind of a mock humility that says, Well, you know, I'm really nothing. I can't do anything. I'm a nobody. Don't regard what I say. I can't do anything. And I certainly can't do it as well as so-and-so. You know that. Because that would contradict what Paul said in chapter 12, verse 3, to think with sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And it doesn't mean that we don't serve God in the church using our spiritual gifts, because we think, well, somebody else might be more gifted in that. Well, they might be. Lots of people are more gifted than me. I'm not even about to go there. (laughs) Rather, it means that we should have a true estimate of ourselves. We should not overestimate ourselves, nor should we underestimate ourselves. But the bottom line is, God has called us, he has gifted us, he has indwelt us by his Holy Spirit. We are filled with his Holy Spirit so that we might serve one another in love the same way that Christ has loved and served us. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, in just a moment as we come to the table of the Lord, Father, we are going to celebrate the greatest demonstration of love in human history. God, you demonstrated your own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, as we sing our closing hymn, and as we understand that Jesus gave our life for us, what do we have to give to him? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit work in each one of our hearts because for each one of us, every one of us are going to have a different answer. It's going to be in accord with where we are, what we are going through, how you made us, how you gifted us, and where we are in our Christian life right here and now, especially when it comes to this whole topic of loving one another as Christ has loved us. Father, I thank you that you're going to speak to our hearts, even in our closing or our invitation hymn. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.